Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 249. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 249 you are listening to. My guest today is Jeff Colheedy. Jeff is a Grammy-nominated producer, composer, engineer, and musician located right here in the Bay Area. And he is currently a staff engineer at 25th Street Recording and is also a house producer, engineer, and mentor at Zoo Labs, which is a music accelerator based in Oakland, California. Jeff's done a few things in his time, you know, as far as production and engineering, but checking out his bio, I discovered he's actually performed with John Legend and Pete Wentz, and he's done a bunch of other stuff. And I'll include a link to his website in the show notes. Uh, Jeff stopped by the house recently here for a sit-down interview this past week, which I look forward to you hearing. So, Jeff Colheedy, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee, friends. Let's talk about what I want for you. Recently, I've been binge-watching the show Designated Survivor. And in the show, Kiefer Sutherland plays a man who is named president when the Capitol building filled with all the members of the U.S. government is bombed, and he, being the designated survivor of the government, of the U.S. government, automatically becomes president. It's a, it's a mixture of the old show, The West Wing, for those of you that remember that, and House of Cards, mixed with some concepts that are a little far-fetched, but it is entertaining. I really enjoy it. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland plays this president that wants the best for his people in the most sincere of ways that borders on naive but noble at the same time. Uh, now, while I don't think of myself as presidential, I do sincerely want what's best for you, my listeners, and do I think that's naive? Actually, I don't. Um, so let me say it. Here's a list of what I want for you all. I want you all to be financially stable uh, and have great lives with your loved ones. I want you to be able to uh, find the form of audio work that you love. And I want you to be smart business people who know how to weather the storms of business and audio as it fluctuates. And I also want you to be diversified so you can survive and not become discouraged and leave the world of audio because we need all of you. Uh, I want you all to be constantly evaluating yourselves and figuring out how to improve as humans, as engineers, as business people, as dads, moms, brothers, sisters, uncles, cousins, etc., etc., and friends. Basically, I want you all to be happy and successful in your own minds. And that's the conclusion I came to as I watched uh, Kiefer Sutherland play the president on this show. I thought, hmm, he wants what's best for his people. I want what's best for, for my listeners. You know, there's no harm in that. And I'm sure there's a bit of me as a parent that wants to take care of people, and that's where some of that comes from. I also think it comes as the result of doing almost 250 episodes of this podcast and constantly getting emails and messages from listeners who tell me how the show has helped guide them through some rough waters. And I, I have to admit, the coffee many of you have sent over the years warms my heart, as do those messages. So... While I can want these things for you, it's not about what I want. 
It's about what you want for you. I can influence you through these monologues and the interviews I do, but I sure as shit cannot make you do what you don't want to do. Now, if you are already at a good place in your life with an audio career, that's great. That, that makes me happy. That thrills me to no end. However, if you are in a transitional time or down in the dumps and hitting rock bottom, then I'm here to ask you to stay focused. Don't lose faith in what you are trying to accomplish and know that your struggle, no matter how big or small, is something you can look back on and know that it helped shape your future success. Never forget making mistakes and correcting course is part of the journey. Not, not just making mistakes, but failing and making mistakes. So to conclude, don't get distracted by what's not important and stay the course. That's my wish for you. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together.
All right, let's get to it. Jeff Golheedy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Matt, it is a pleasure to be here. I've long admired your podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for coming out to my house and makes it a hell of a lot easier. My pleasure. It's beautiful out here. It's good mm. to be out here. Yeah, which an out here audience is in Lafayette, California. You grew up out here. I did. Which yes. is uh, interesting because Lafayette, I didn't even know existed until probably five or six years ago. Yeah, it's kind of its own little, I guess, oasis bedroom community in the East Bay maybe 15 minutes from Oakland with no traffic. And yeah, it was a wonderful place to grow up. We call it the Shire, some of us, because it's green rolling hills <laughs> filled with oak trees. And, and hobbits. Hobbits, yeah. yeah. I swear I've seen them when I was in high school on, at a late hour. And you actually went to the same middle school that my kids are going to yes. right now, which is interesting. So what was it like growing up here? Well, it was, there's a sheltered aspect to being in Contra Costa County, certainly. You yeah. know, it's so much different when you go through the tunnel from Oakland into Contra Costa County. Even the weather's different. It's a little bit more warm. It was a great upbringing. Again, it's, it's beautiful. The school systems are great. It's public schools, but they're, the teachers are wonderful and the classes were great. Granted, I may have not thought that when I was younger. I was a little bit of a rowdy kid. Were you a pain in the ass? Uh, I would say in kindergarten and first grade, that's where I got through my punk phase, but I got through that quickly, I like to think. <laughs> but no, Lafayette was, it is a quiet community. There was a lot of space for me to kind of get in my own head and into my imagination. I loved it. You know, elementary school was really great. And I quickly, through a couple teachers, was able to explore the creative sides of my mind with art and whatnot. So it was the com community in general is very accepting towards art, and I'm very grateful for that. You played an instrument growing up? Yes. What did you play? Started on sax, alto sax, and then shifted over to tenor. That's kind of the main horn that I play, but I dabble with all saxophones. And you went through the uh, Stanley Middle School band program with the great Bob Athey. Yes, the legendary Bob. Yeah. Who I am forever indebted. I think many, many people that have gone through his program feel that way. Yeah. The dude is a total mentor, philosopher, crazy band director, like all wrapped into one. Yes, entirely. When I first heard his name, <laughs> it's like... I was putting it all together like Baba Thade. And I, I didn't know what he looked like. And I was imagining like he was from potentially Africa. I did like I thought I was thinking more exotic. Hmm. And when I met him, I was like, oh, oh, Bob, your name's right. Bob. Oh, okay. Like Bill. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing exotic there, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but his teaching methods are great. And I've witnessed how he handles students and really encourages them. And it's it's pretty stunning the effect someone like that in a middle school can have on somebody's future career. And in particular, obviously we're talking about you today. I mean, do you have anything to say about that, about his effect on you? Yeah. Bob Athade, again, was immensely influential. I would argue that if it wasn't for him and maybe a couple of my, my sax instructors, I wouldn't be in the music industry. They really helped to kind of shape that focus for me, but in a very patient way. So he got me into jazz. That's where I started in what was called the Jazz Crusaders, which I believe... Which still exists. Yeah, your son is in the Crusaders? No, he's in the Messenger. In the Messenger. He's, in, he's in the lower level. Gotcha. Because he's just starting on... He switched instruments. So that... Well, for, for us, that was the Crusaders, and then it shifted to the Messengers, but did that flip? 
Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he is in the Crusaders. He's and, in the lower level band. Gotcha. And if that's the Crusaders, then he's a Crusader. Yeah. Well, anyways, yeah. So that program very much shaped my passion for music and jazz. So it was then that I got in, into jazz music and, and classical music. And yeah, you know, it was every morning, every weekday in the morning would be the jazz program at 7 a.m. And that would wake us all up. And he'd always come in with just a very positive attitude, and, and it was fun. I looked forward to getting up early to, to partake in that band. Did he do the early morning coffee service then? He did. Okay. Yeah, he certainly did. So, audience, so imagine, like, you're a parent of your and your kid's in this music program. Yep. Well, the band director kind of lures you in to come and watch and, and hang out yep. by offering coffee. And, he's, and we're not talking, like, you know, come and have— a carafe of coffee. He's got like an industrial right. coffee maker. More there. massive than what you might see at a Starbucks. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, and it's great coffee. It's, it's Pete's coffee. Yep. Anyhow, interesting role. And it's, it's, it, I think it's important in the story for you. It's important in, I think a lot of people's stories, how a band director can have such an impact on one's career, regardless if they wind up on the audio side of, of music or on the uh, music side of music. Yeah. You went to college, right? Yep, I went to Cal State Northridge. Well, that's where I ultimately ended up. So it was after Stanley Middle School, I went to Camp Lindo High School, which which I think at that time had the stronger jazz band between the surrounding high schools. So I went there, and Harvey Benstein was the teacher. And he was he was great. A bit of a different style from Bob Thade, where Bob Thade kind of had a calm, collective methodology. Harvey Benson was way more old school. He would throw pencils and books at students if they were misbehaving, but that was an intensity that was really great to experience. I went there and really honed more on the jazz and at the same time was studying under Mary Fedick, who's a wonderful saxophonist who's also in nearby. She's in Pleasant Hill. And then after after Camp Belindo, I was a little bit lost. I was trying to figure out, okay, should I be doing the music thing or should I do something that's a little bit more common? And so it, it was a two-year kind of hump of trying to figure my shit out. So I ended up going to St. Mary's because my, my father teaches there. Unfortunately, I was able to receive some benefits through that. Fortunately or unfortunately? <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. At okay. that time, maybe I, I thought it was unfortunate, but it was very helpful you know, at that time, especially not knowing ultimately what I wanted to do, having that opportunity to at least beat St. Mary's for a couple of years. So it was there that I was kind of double majoring in business administration and in music. And the music was more classically oriented, which was great. But it still at that time, I was kind of confused, still unsure where I should go, if I should focus on performing more, because much of my previous years was on performance, jazz performance in particular. And fortunately, Mary Fedick, she mentioned the music business program both at USC and Cal State Northridge. And ultimately, I ended up going to Cal State Northridge. And that, as soon as I moved down to LA, it kind of reshifted and focused what I would ultimately be doing, which is a career in the music industry. What was it that refocused you? If you could I think put words to it. As soon as I saw that there was a program that had both business and music kind of integrated, 
that made me realize, okay, I can do both. And it, it felt more safe to me. I'm the kind of person that always needs to have some form of, of stability and just thinking music that I'm going to be, let's say, a rock star performer, try to go that path would bring a little bit of anxiety at that time. So it felt, it felt right to kind of have that, that medium between the business and music in, hmm. my, in my education. And especially as soon as I moved down there and, and entered a community where the entertainment industry and music is such a normal thing, I felt more at home and comfortable on the path that I was on. So at what point, at what point did audio take over you know, I was always exploring it a little bit in high school with Cakewalk, just a little bit. I was in a couple of different rock bands in high school, and we would use, remember for a moment, those recording hardware units that had like the CD burner built into it were popular? Like, yes. Yeah. Boss had one and Roland had one. So we would mess with those. But when I was in college, I was in another band called Balance and the Traveling Sounds, and we would record in one of the musicians bedrooms and that's where i kind of learned more about pro tools and cubase so i think ultimately it was through kind of bedroom recording that i developed an interest in that also actually to rewind one of my sax instructors the late tony trahan he kind of made me curious about it because he had a little recording set up in his studio yeah it was definitely college that that really sparked the interest ultimately and then after college, I, you know, I noticed that a friend was working at a recording studio and I thought, okay, that seems really fun. The facility looks beautiful. He seems like he's having a blast. He's working his ass off, but I want to work my ass off doing something like that. Cause you know, the, the work I was doing at the time was not compelling. It was a nine to five office job in the music publishing business. So I wanted that. So I would go to the studio late night, his studio, and just kind of ask him some questions. And and that helped. But ultimately, I, I just was hoping for that opportunity to get my foot in the door at another studio that was looking for an assistant. Fortunately, a couple of years into working at that music publishing house, a, a friend that works at ASCAP forwarded me a job opportunity. So I quickly just sent them my information, a resume. And they wanted to interview me. And long story short, I got the gig. And it's, it was a studio called Matter Music. I believe it still exists. And they focus on music for TV and film. And it was there. It was trial by fire. I had to learn quick because I had three bosses that were very intense, like ex-rock stars. And, you know, it was the three of them and me. And having to juggle and help one, one of them out with their mic set up and they set up their Pro Tools session. A lot of stuff I didn't know how to do at the time, but they expected it. And fortunately, one of them, Chris Wagner, kind of showed me the ropes. And he was very helpful in, in kind of giving me an understanding in Pro Tools and Melodyne and, and how to edit quickly. In their own ways, they were all very helpful. Richard Markman, Dan Pinella, shout out to all of y'all. <laughs> Thank you. If you're listening. If you're listening, greatly appreciate it. What are the major takeaways from that? I think one of the main things I got out of that experience was how to properly mic drums. Dan was very specific on how he wanted it, and he swore by kind of retro mic techniques, the way the Beatles might have done it, for example. So that was a lot of, I guess, knowledge or hours was, was gained on drum miking technique. 
through him, as well as the microphones. They have a kind of a similar system or set of mics and just equipment in general to 25th Street Recording, which we'll talk about. Yeah, so just an understanding of the differences between tube mics and, you know, ribbon mics, condensers, dynamic, etc. I was able to kind of understand that more there and experiment after hours. I had the time to to play with things and work on my own music. I think anytime you spend time at a place like that, there's always a couple key takeaways that in spite of, you know, time passing and memories fading, yeah. you always remember one or two things from a place. Right. And the miking thing being one of them, are there others? Yeah, I think this was coming right out of a time where I was having a lot of self-doubts in, in terms of what I wanted to do, as I mentioned when I was at St. Mary's. So this was a couple years after that. And there was a lot of validation that came through that experience. They, they trusted me quickly to manage the facility and at the same time do a lot of creative things. I started composing for some of the TV shows. And yeah, it was specifically when I was doing the composing that I realized, oh, okay, this is something that I could do. I could I could make a living off of this. And seeing royalty checks come in was really cool. So that's definitely a takeaway from that experience, just realizing certain things within the music industry that is possible. Seems like you were you were going through a little bit of an identity crisis of definitely trying to figure out what am I? What am I going to do? How is my life going to pan out here? And you're still at, at an early age at that point where it's like, it's a little scary. Yeah, that's precisely what I was going through. I, it, I was going through a little existential crisis in a way. I was dabbling on a lot of different things with performing. I was still doing a lot of jazz gigs and, and playing in, in a handful of bands and doing engineering and composing and producing. And so it was a time certainly where I was trying to understand what made the most sense. Because if I was tackling all of those at the same time, it was just chaotic. Yeah. And did you... I mean, you came from music originally. Yeah. You had a little bit of business exposure with studying it, at least. So was there outside pressure from from family to pick something to do and do it kind of a thing? No, not really. I think it was more of a pressure just from more societal pressures. You know, looking at the surrounding community, growing up, everyone tended to go on a less creative path, you know, be a dentist or be an accountant or do some type of sales job. It was more just kind of, yeah, the surrounding social environment, which made me kind of question if this is realistic. Mm. And it seemed more like a like a dream to me to take this path. And that's just ultimately because it's what I want to do. And there can be more fear that comes from that. It is a scary thing to go through that, to try to figure out, like, what's my role? What am I going to do? How am I going to survive? What does the future hold for me? Finding your footing is, it's a process for sure. And it makes it harder too when you, when you want to do audio and you're not making enough money in the beginning. And that's when a lot of people go, oh shit, this isn't working. I got to get out of this. Yeah, totally. So, so what came next? So yeah, I worked at Matter for a few years and I wanted to move on and explore just doing completely an independent contractor life as a, as a composer. And so I spent the next couple of years doing that 
had some success, but it was also a struggle too, you know, always think, trying to think ahead of like, what's, what's the next gig going to be? Who should I be reaching out to? Which music houses should I throw a resume at with my work? And so that was also just another big learning experience in terms of how to manage myself and my time and know when to switch my brain to doing more admin based work to just doing some deep work and focusing on a composition or recording. So that was the next couple years down in LA. How did you find it living in LA? You know, it, I feel like LA gets a bad rep from a lot of people that haven't lived down there, but I actually very much like it. It has all sorts of communities. It, of course, it's got the Hollywood type people, but it's also got kind of an East Coast vibe if you're more in East LA. West LA is very, very laid back. The food is wonderful. The LA locals are wonderful. Like the Hispanic community are so awesome. Some of my best friends are down in LA. Yeah, I, I, I'm very fond of that whole area. Of course, being back in the Bay Area, I love the nature and I love that it's not always hot and it's not as much of a sprawl of people. So kind of fast forwarding to now, I would say that LA is a great place to visit. And I definitely want to continue to have a presence down there. I mean, ideally it would be great to have a place down there, have a place up here and continue just conducting work down there. Tell me about that, the, the remaining years in LA and what eventually led to you coming back here. Yeah. So the, maybe towards the final six months being in LA, I was doing work for a few different music house companies and fortunate to have at that time I did a trailer composition for the movie Moonlight as well as other compositions for other ads so things were looking promising as far as composing specifically in the ad world and then I also did my first feature film composition gig but I was just working my butt off but totally understanding that that's what I have to do was doing it it was I really enjoyed it. However, it was a very kind of lonely period too, because I would find myself just stuck in my little composition space and would be there from the early AM all the way till who knows how late I would just kind of get so lost in, in the work. So there were pros and cons to that. And definitely looking back, I could have managed my well-being a little bit more, found some time to step outside more. But I ultimately moved back up to the Bay Area because of my girlfriend at the time. She was from up here and she was adamant about getting out of LA at some point and finally she just wanted to do it. So in, a, in an emergency, I reached out to all the recording studios I was aware of and got some more contacts from some friends. And the first place I reached out to was 25th Street Recording. The second place I reached out to was Zoo Labs. And fortunately, they were the studios that ultimately were quick to respond. And I met up with John Schimpf, the, the studio manager at 25th Street. Former WCA guest, John Schimpf. That's right. And he was very welcoming. We had a great conversation. And then he just kept me in mind for if, if any opportunities popped up. And fast forwarding, fortunately, maybe a year afterwards, I started getting into the 25th Street family. I had my first session and... Since then, it's been maybe two and a half years. In the last year and a half, I've, I've been a staff engineer alongside Gabriel Shepard. Another guest. Right. <laughs> but rewinding again, Zoo Labs is what ultimately, that was my first gig in the Bay Area. And so my girlfriend moved, moved up here first. And then a few months later, I started 
working in one of the Z-Labs residencies. And Z-Labs is a recording studio, but a little bit different. It's not quite a commercial facility, but they have these two-week residency programs. It's almost like a, an accelerator or an incubator, which we have in a lot of, it's in the tech industry mainly. So artists will get chosen to participate in this and they'll learn business, tech, entrepreneurial skill sets during the daytime and then in the afternoon into the evening they'll work on a record and so I was helping as a producer and engineer and that was such a wonderful shift where previously I was again alone in a room <laughs> composing like finally I was being social and working with artists and working with the with the staff at Zoo Labs and being on my feet more and exploring a different side of, of music which is producing and I found that to be very inspiring. And I guess in producing in general, I'm more out of my head and I'm instead helping inspire the artist, the talent. So it was very refreshing, just not only being up in the Bay, but having a completely different kind of profession start to unfold that's still in the music industry. Was that a staff type job? Yes. For when, well, when the residencies would occur, I would get hired on. So you'd to, be an independent contractor exactly, for that period. Exactly. Okay. So that was a continuation, I guess, of the independent contractor life from exiting from that matter music. And it was also bringing more confirmation in this lifestyle, which I'm still living the independent contractor lifestyle. Did you have any takeaways from that experience that gave you some new skills or, or, or ideas or concepts to apply to your own career? Yeah. In terms of the technicalities, understanding the board more, there was an SSL board. I hadn't experienced that before. And Brad Dollar, who at the time was kind of studio managing, facilitating all of the sessions, was very helpful and giving me knowledge on that. And then kind of also understanding a different live room environment and, and trying to figure out how to best use the microphones in a room that you know, was was very different from the matter live room. As far as other other takeaways, I would say the business knowledge. I would step into some of those classes and get a better understanding on music publishing. They'd bring in some specialists that were out in Nashville or LA that might own, let's say, a music house company or do music supervision. So hmm. there was some takeaways from that. But I think the biggest takeaway was kind of being a part of and witnessing the social environment of Zoo Labs and kind of understanding my role and other people's roles and knowing when to suggest something versus when to just hold and tell myself that's not exactly my specialty, so I don't need to comment on that. I guess like any kind of work environment, just kind of understanding where you're positioned in that space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Knowing when to speak up is a fascinating journey to learn. Yeah. And uh, is always a work in progress. At least it is for me, because I've definitely spoke up in some situations where I probably should kept my, have kept my mouth shut. But, uh, I've, I've done the same. But at the sure. same time, I've also kept my mouth shut in some situations where I should have spoken right. up. Right. It's that, that balance. It's <laughs> just tricky. So how long were you there? I'm still there. Oh, you're you know, still they, there? They, they call on me when these residencies happen. For the most part, I've, I've done all of the residencies since I moved up here a few years ago. Minus the current one, I wasn't able to. But 
Yeah. It's, it's just whenever a residency happens and then in between residencies, they're kind of preparing for the next one or the artists that were in different residencies, you know, they might be using the space during those gaps. Interesting. I continue to work. When you're the new person in any organization, there's a little bit of adapting to the culture of that place. Yeah. How is that at 25th Street? Well, I come into any new environment always being just a little, not nervous, but just kind of introverted quiet. I want to just observe and, and see how the, how the culture is. But it really was quick for me to feel comfortable at 25th Street. The environment in general, like when I first stepped in there to meet John when I was still living in LA, was so laid back, very welcoming. But yeah, when I officially became a, a staff engineer, you know, we the, the banter, like I got thrown in pretty quickly in a good way. Just fun banter with John, fun banter with Gabriel. So that totally broke down, I think, any kind of walls I may have had in entering a new work space. So yeah, it was, it was I got comfortable pretty quick. Yet, you know, it still is John. I, I consider him a really great friend, but ultimately still a superior being the, the manager of this facility. And so I still always want to be respectful, even when we're just hanging and having fun dialogue. And the same goes for Gabriel, who's been in the industry for so long. I've got so much respect for him. And I know I bug him a lot asking questions, and <laughs> but he's so, so patient. And even when things are really chaotic, like he's always doing something at the studio. He's there probably more than anyone. And yet he still is able to make the space to help out another. And I think that's also just the overall kind of way we go about things there. We help each other out. We'll sidestep and, and, and jump into another person's session if, if need be. So it's very collaborative. How long has it been since you've been there now? So the first session was about two and a half years ago, but it was maybe one and a half years ago that I kind of finally became a staff engineer. Previous engineer had, had moved on. And so there was a space for me. Yeah. But it seems like it's been, it's gone by quickly. It seems like yesterday that I just jumped in. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. What I find fascinating about doing sessions like that when you're the staff person is a group of people come in to make something creative you've never met and just kind of that fast adaptation of, okay, we got to get to know each other kind of quickly, yeah. show respect and facilitate. And it's, it's just, it's kind of like, it's a very quick team building type exercise yeah in human interaction, you know? What have you learned over the years of, of doing that now, right. of, of getting yourself acclimated and making yeah. them feel comfortable at the same time? Right. Well, I think learning that it's, in a lot of these situations, it's not about me. You know, it's a customer service type of job. And these clients come in with a, with a lot of passion, sometimes a lot of anxiety. And to not let that enter my system is important and to be patient and then with regards to the other staff at 25th street and moving quickly 
I actually think there's not really any cons to that. It's more, what I really appreciate is that there's, there's no bullshit. We don't have any time to fret over anything or like to get passive aggressive towards one another. Like we just, we don't have time for that. And so the dialogue, when we do have time, the dialogue is awesome and it's a good hang. So learning also just to, to move quickly has been very helpful there too. Sessions are back to back and you have to get pretty creative. You know, you don't always have the benefit to have the ideal set up on the console. You know, maybe you'll have to plug straight into Pro Tools because you just don't have enough time. So you're not using the faders. So yeah, just having to move move quickly has actually been a wonderful lesson at 25th Street. And also looking at microphones too, just being at that studio has given me more knowledge on what microphone is guaranteed to do the job for a particular application. So just grabbing that mic, throwing it right in front of the amp and knowing it's going to work and doing it quickly. I've, I feel more comfortable doing that. Whereas maybe in the past I would have thought, oh, maybe I should have put two microphones or used that ribbon microphone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and obviously your knowledge base is, is grown tremendously sure. over the time of being there. And then, you know, if you take that back to matter music and how you were instructed on the methods of recording drums there and mic choices here. It's, it seems like you're at a point where you're making it your own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to go along with that too, at 25th street, even though we have to move quickly, we're able to do things with our own personal method. So Gabriel has his own way of using, of using the board. I have my way of, of, of using the board. Yeah. So there, there, there still is in those small spaces room to just, kind of focus in on what's going to work for you to keep going at the speed that's required at this facility. We're always developing as, as, as audio people, but hopefully you're always developing. Yeah, no, it's forever a lesson. Yeah, it's it's a work in progress continually, yeah. but it's I think it's important to eventually break away from being told what to do and, and, and adopting other people's methods and, right. and more getting into this works for me kind of right. concept because then you can take ownership and control over the situation. You can make sure you're guiding the session as it should be guided mm -hmm. rather than just responding and going, well, I was, you know, I was told I need to put an SM57 on the snare, so let's go put a right. 57 on the snare and... Whereas over time you develop, well, maybe I don't want to do that. Yeah. And this works better for me and I'm going to stick to this method. Yeah. I think ultimately that is where I strive to be. And maybe sometimes I jump to that too quickly. For example, a recent kind of learning experience for me was Leslie Ann Jones over at Skywalker. She came to the studio and I was assisting that session. And for the most part, when I'm at 25th Street, I'm running the session. So again, I have my own specific way, but she had a very different one, very unique. And I had to figure that whole system out pretty quickly. But, you know, I had a couple layers. And so those lessons learned, I think, are very beneficial. And I'm still at a place where I am willing and should kind of see other people's methodologies because perhaps there's something I can take from that. And I certainly did from her. And again, since we are a commercial facility, we do bring in outside engineers and we need to be ready to assist them with their specific needs. As, as you tell me these stories and tell me your story, there's these points at which we talked about, first of all, those early years of insecurity of trying to find your spot, you know, trying to figure out what your path is. Is it going to be music? Is it going to be audio? Is it going to be a hybrid of that? How do I make a living? Where do I go? Who am I? How do I chart my own path? You land at a place like 25th Street 
And it's also that same transition of going from what I was taught to what I now want to do. These points in time of transition that are kind of, it's easy for me to look back on now at my age because I can hear your story and go, oh yeah, I kind of remember that when I had to find my way or transition from using other people's methods and adopt my own methods. And But at the same time, you still have to stay flexible yeah. because you do have situations like Leslie Ann Jones coming exactly. in. You're mature enough and you should at this point know, well, okay, I have my method, but okay, I've got to adopt to her methods. Right. And not only do you have to have her as a client, but you also have to have her client as a client mm -hmm. and uh, service both. Yeah. Service facilitating getting the recording done, service facilitating helping Leslie do her job in, yep. so that she feels comfortable. That's an even trickier oh, position yeah. to be in. Oh, yeah. And to do it well takes so much maturity and takes a lot of experience to know how to do it and, and right, not right. come off like a, a half-witted uh, studio lackey. Yep, totally. Ultimately, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? I want to produce. I, I really like helping artists again find their vision i like to motivate but i still like the process of engineering mm -hmm. so to, to keep incorporating that and producing and that's what i'm doing now with, with a lot of my clients to be able to engineer and also produce is, is ideal for me some of my my heroes still do it that way yeah and i'm open to explore a music house venture so that's been something that's that's been cooking for the last couple of years boutique type of thing which would focus first and foremost probably on my my catalog of music but then also on my friends music friends up here as well as down in los angeles so yeah producing and kind of music supervision hmm. i see that being something that i hone in on even more and maybe engineering will it will still exist but be a little bit less because in my current situation there's it's kind of all hands on deck a lot of the time with the engineering since it's just me and, and Gabriel. So perhaps down the road, there might be a little bit more space to, to focus more in on, on, on these two other ventures. How do you find the work-life balance being a staff person? Because you and I met the other day to exchange some files for a project that we both worked on that I'm mixing and you had a hand in recording uh, yeah. a major portion of. So we were there kind of not late, but later than a nine to five job. Yeah. How does that impact your life? It's definitely a challenge, the kind of unique hours, the ever-shifting schedule. I can't say I'm great at this, but I, but what when I am feeling optimal, it's because I'm making sure that I have at least a day or two off per week, which isn't always the case, quite often isn't the case, and that I'm, I'm getting outside more. You know, in studios, we're, we're technically in a submarine, there's no windows, though 25th Street has skylights in the live room, everyone. Yes, it does. But yeah, it's, it's, it's important for me to step away from technology as much as I can outside of this, the recording studio. And, and I do that by hiking. The Bay Area is, is incredible when it comes to nature and how, how quickly you can get onto a beautiful trail. And yoga, actually, the last couple of years, I've been addicted to yoga. And I, I, I try to do that at, at least every other day and that allows me to get out of my head more and focus more on my body that's going to be my new band <laughs> addicted to yoga addicted to yoga oh man so it'd be perfect right now it's it's so in that's good that you make time to do that i know that strange 
at least it, I've encountered this. I don't know if you've encountered this where you're at a session, you think it's going to go to a particular time and you feel this pressure and this obligation and you get this thing in your belly where right. you're kind of like, oh Ooh. shit, it's going to go longer. Okay. Yeah. The final half an hour when it's a big question mark like that is, is the worst. At this point, I try to let the client know, hey, you know, our time is up. I, I can't go any later. I truly do what is best for me at that point because I'm not going to be giving them the, the, the best quality product if I'm extremely tired. So I don't always do that. Sometimes I do go over more and, and I might be really inspired and want to keep going. But often the case, once we reach that mark, I want to wind things down and just because it's for my mental health. Right. It's important, but it's not always easy. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Tell me if you agree with me on this. I think for some people, some artists that come into to a studio to make a record, they've got a to-do list. They're very organized. It's like, okay, we got to get these overdubs done on these songs. And it's like, you have kind of a, a group of actionable items that can be accomplished, right? Yeah. Some people are not as organized and it's more of like, a, first of all, they're crazy happy to be in the studio and they want to experiment and they they aren't really accomplishing much and so right. when you get to the end of a 10-hour day with someone like that and they're just fucking around that's when i'm like yeah i'm gonna turn into a pumpkin it's time to go yep and, and for me too that's annoying but you know it changes for me if the client is like okay we got nine out of the ten overdubs done can we just squeeze this 10th one in? You're just like, yeah, let's do that. Let's cross right. the finish line. And I'm there with them. But if they literally, like if there's no organization to it, that's when I lose interest in st I'm, sticking around for the long run there. Yeah, I'm so with you, Matt. If they got their shit together and they have a game plan, that's going to inspire me more too to, to go longer. So for artists who are listening, get your shit get together. Get your shit together. Make sure you have a plan. <laughs> of course there should be... You know what, actually, if the the list of things to do is super complex and there's no space for a little bit of creativity, that can get frustrating in its own right. But if it's like bullet pointed and there's room to explore, that's perfect. Yeah, especially when, as we both know, lots of clients like to experiment in the process. They yeah. like to, you know, it's their first time and they want to try different mics and different mic setups and multiple mics. And sometimes right. you're just like, oh, one mic would do the job, yep. but they want to try six. Right. <laughs> That's tricky, especially since 
they're they're paying to be in this facility that has all sorts of amazing microphones and i'm usually open for that okay let's let's try these things out and actually sometimes there's a discovery that's made and maybe i'll apply, I apply that in the future but if you know i find that it's an hour or two spent doing this then i get more specific and, and suggest okay this is actually going to work it's great that we did this but let's let's carry on with this and keep it moving yeah finding at that balance point of when to say okay playtime's over yeah let's capture what we need to capture for the song yep and move on so you've lived in los angeles you've lived in the bay area two very expensive places to live outrageous so how have you managed to make it work has it been a struggle have there's been some times where you've considered leaving the state of california yeah i mean during the last Maybe two years before leaving LA, that was a struggle financially when I when I left Matter Music and was starting my own thing and doubts would, would come and and I did take some some side gigs that weren't music related. But being back in the Bay Area with that Zoo Labs opportunity, that was very much a part time endeavor. So I did step away from music for about a year and a half. I was teaching at a high school and teaching music. So yeah, I mean be, being in the Bay Area it is a challenge to be an artist, be any type of creative because of the cost of living. But that chaos too, for me, can also be motivating. I think a lot of great art is created through chaos, whereas in another situation, if I was in an environment where there's so much space to be free and do whatever, for me, maybe I wouldn't be as eager to force out music and find that time to, to work on something creative. So there is there is a positive for me through the chaos. That is an interesting point because if you if you can cut it here, if you can make it work, it's almost like I would equate it to say like somebody who does sports and lives and trains in Colorado where the air is thinner, you're at a higher altitude. God knows every time I go to Colorado, just making it up the stairs at my sister-in-law's house, I get up to the stairs, I'm like, geez, I'm a little out of breath. Oh, right, we're at a higher altitude. Yep. So if you live and train in that environment, then when you go to the, the lower elevations, it's like you're flying, yeah. I would assume. I'm not a sports person. So hear me out here. So then you take that, that, that concept and you try to survive in an expensive environment. It kind of forces your hand at making some decisions that if you lived in a more relaxed place where you could be a little more complacent, it's a different outcome. You have to focus with with no bullshit because your time is more limited and you're trying to survive too. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but certainly these last couple years, it's, I've been so busy that I've not, I've been able to look back or when I pay my bills, I guess each month and realize, Oh, okay. All that work paid off. Yeah. There's, there's some overhead. This is, this is good. Yeah. This is all, this is all great. So I just haven't had much time to think about the struggle because I have been working a lot. And so I'm very grateful for that. However, I know that can, that can change in an instant in this independent contractor lifestyle. So it's always been, for me, just grateful for where I'm at, and, but also knowing it could, it could change. What is your approach to survival? Are you a saver? Do you, do you plan for the worst? I do save, you know, I, I throw a, a certain percentage into a few different accounts, but not, 
I don't look ahead too far. I could probably be better at that with my, with my money management. But yeah, I certainly try to make sure that there is a bit of a cushion just in case something happens. But yeah, it could be better. Is there anything that we should touch on that you think we haven't touched on that's important? Some records that are going to be released soon. I'm excited for them, so I want to kind of give them shout outs. Yeah, what, what's cool. that? What do you got coming out? There's a soul funk rock band called Midtown Social. They're based out of San Francisco, and they're about to release a full-length album in the next couple months called Fantastic Colors. And I had the pleasure of producing that and recording it. And I think it's it's a solid record. The songwriting is really great, and they're they're doing their thing. Like they're currently playing a lot around the Bay Area. They're on a tour right now. And yeah, so keep a lookout. Midtown Social, their their next record. Um, and then there's another group called Ostu, and she's kind of an alternative soul R and B, a little bit of rock in there. And she's out of Oakland and we are dropping just a bunch of singles with it ultimately being a full-length record. And her first single got released a couple of weeks ago called G4U. Mm-hmm. And the second one, Reckless, will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And she's got a wonderful voice. I'm so happy to be a part of that. So I think, yeah, those two shout-outs. Okay. We'll put links in the show notes to both, and people can check those out. And then you have a website, right? I do. And that is? JeffColheedy.com. Now, how do you spell Colheedy? K-O-L, as in Larry, H-E-D as in dog, E. All right, there it is. I'll put a link in the show notes to not only your website, but these uh, artists that you've mentioned. So, Great. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming out. Matt, it's been a pleasure. Should we make another cup of coffee? Yes, please. Let's do that. Need that crack. Okay, let's do it. All right. Jeff Colheedy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I want to thank my crew for their contributions to the show, including Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell for the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his smooth radio voice. Thank you again for tuning in week after week. Remember to stay focused and stay the chorus, and tune in next week for WCA number 250. Until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.